0: Well, let's pray as we begin to open up the word. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctified us with your commandments and commands us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Amen. I like to keep up with what different rabbis from different perspectives are are saying on Current events and different topics. And so I was taking notice of what the chatter is on the internet in the Jewish forums. And this time of year, one of the big questions is well, what is kosher for Passover? And it turns out that Ashkenazi Jews have traditions that are different from Sephardic Jews. You might not know that, but for instance, Sephardic Jews will eat corn and rice and beans and all sorts of things. And Ashkenazi Jews, we were all taught you can't eat those things for Passover. It turns out those, those kidney those small items that can maybe be confused with hummus are not actually hummus. And so the Ashkenazi Jews all over, not just North America, but all over the world are saying, well, if the Sephardic Jews can eat these things, why can't we? (laughs) And so there was actually some dialogue on one of the Jewish forums about whether tortillas could be kosher for Passover especially if they were made within 18 minutes of mixing the flour and the water, you know, a classic Jewish deadline, after which uh, dough can become like sourdough and pick up, you know, airborne yeast and develop. And so it was an Ashkenazi rabbi who said, it's theoretically possible, but it doesn't exist. And he said this as an Ashkenazi rabbi because he said, Unless a rabbi confirms that it's kosher for Passover, it's not. And so I understood we were getting a little like franchise war going on. Not just between the Ashkenazi Jews and the Sephardic Jews, but rabbis who earn their living by declaring what is kosher and what is not for Passover. So a lot of stuff going on. It made me think, what should we talk about this year at Passover? And we're not going to talk about what you can eat. Is that a relief? Yes. Okay. Let's, let's look at Passover from a heavenly perspective. And let's ask, let's ask a question that's not always asked at this time. What was God doing at Passover, and how does God use Passover? You know, we are taught that when we celebrate Passover, we should say, I was delivered from slavery at Passover. That we are to project ourselves back to that moment when the exodus took place and we are to count ourselves as having been there and having been the beneficiaries of it. And so a lot of thought about of Passover is from the human perspective and I think that's a useful perspective because... Because it touches us and affects us. But let's take another perspective. Let's say, what was God doing at Passover? And how was he using Passover? I want to share with you tonight seven ways that God used Passover and the exodus from Egypt. And then I want to connect God's Passover victory in Egypt to the death and the resurrection of Yeshua, which took place during Passover. Did you know it was not an accident of timing? Because some people think that, for instance, Yeshua rose from the dead on Easter. But Easter didn't actually exist at that time. And so he rose from the dead during Passover, and that wasn't a surprise to God. That was planned. Well, here is the the first way that God used Passover from... Uh, by delivering the Jewish people from Egypt, he used Passover to demonstrate his exclusive spiritual authority over Israel. And Exodus 20, verses 2 and 3, confirm this. This is contained within what we would call the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words. The Lord says this, "...I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery." How are we to know him? One of the ways is to know him as the one who brought us out of Egypt, who delivered us from the land of slavery. And then he says, you shall have no other gods before me. So he is asserting that on the basis of what he did in Egypt by delivering the Jewish people from from that land and from that slavery, that he has exclusive rights over Israel, and that we must not allow any other God to interrupt. We should bow down to no other gods. We should honor no other gods. Now, God also used Passover. This is number two. He used Passover to verify his covenant with the Jewish people. Exodus chapter 6, again, verses 2 through 5. God said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty, El Shaddai. But by my name, Hashem, yod the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them. How do you say covenant in Hebrew? Brit. How do you say new covenant? Brit I established my Brit, my covenant with them, to give them the land of Canaan where they lived as aliens... Moreover, I've heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. So as God was preparing to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt, he confirmed that he was the same God who had made covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he was doing this act of deliverance in order to verify that covenant with the Jewish people of the day. And he was also confirming that he's faithful to his words. That he had spoken to Israel about what he would do. And that that covenant is not just a relational covenant, but it is a geographic covenant too. It's a covenant that sets aside land for the Jewish people, a land that God means for the Jewish people to continue to inhabit. Number three, God used Passover to show that he's a redeemer. Say that, redeemer. Redeemer. Exodus 12, verses 6 through 8. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you. With an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God, and then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. In other words, God is saying, I'm going to show you that I'm a redeemer, and because of that, you're going to know that you'll want to serve me. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. The Lord used the declaration of his own name, I am the Lord, as bookends here. He opens this statement. He closes the statement. He says, it all is connected to who I am. So when you are thinking about what God does, he wants you to think also about who he is. I am the Lord who does this. I am the Lord God used Passover as an act of redemptive power. Now, it's important to know what redeem means. Redeem means to buy out of slavery. Just repeat that phrase with me. Buy out of slavery. It's very important because the redeemers in Israel are the ones who go and they find their kinsmen who are in trouble either because of debt, because of slavery, because of some oppression in their lives. And they go and they pay a price to purchase the one who is in bondage and to buy their freedom. When God says, I'm your redeemer, he's saying, I pay a price for you. And I purchase you. And now you belong to me. Now, what goes along with this? is that faith and obedience is required for redemption. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Number four, God used Passover to establish an eternal pattern that the blood of the Lamb will identify and mark the children of Israel. Exodus 12, verses 21 through 23. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families, and slaughter the Passover lamb, take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. Not one of you shall go out the door of his house until morning. Verse 23. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood. Say that with me. He will see the blood on the top and the sides of the door frame, and he will pass over that doorway. Now, it's important to keep in mind what this means. He will pass over that doorway, and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. You see, when God passed over the children of Israel, it's not that he skipped their houses. It's that he came to their houses, And recognized the blood of the lamb as an act of faithful obedience on the part of the Jewish people. They did what they were told to do. They put that blood as a sign of their trust in God and their obedience to him. And he recognized that act of faith and he went personally to every house just in time to stop the angel of death, the destroyer who was going through the land to exercise a judgment upon the firstborn of Egypt. God passed over, meaning he came to. It's it's a word that really is normally used in Hebrew to describe the skipping of a lamb. He almost bounced, if you will, like a lamb bounces in the field. Um, From house to house, looking for the blood of the lamb. What was he looking for? The blood of the lamb. What was visible? The blood of the lamb. What was invisible? All the people inside the house. The condition of their hearts, right? God gave them a specific action to take. And it was this. Follow my instructions exactly. Stay inside. But I want you to slaughter a lamb. I want you to cook it over fire. I want you to eat it. And I want you to take blood from that lamb and put it on the doorposts of your house. And I'll be looking for you. God recognizes the faith and obedience of those who took the blood of the lamb. At Passover, Israel had to take the blood and apply it. It wasn't enough to have blood available. The Jewish people had to take it and apply the blood. And the same is true today. That pattern that was established at Passover was confirmed with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Yeshua. I'll talk about that more. But it's necessary to not just know about this blood, but to take this blood. Yeshua, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Number five, God also used Passover to demonstrate his authority over Egypt and over all nations of the world, including those that do not recognize him or submit to him. Let's ask a question. Does God have authority over the whole earth? Yes or no? How does he prove it? He proved it by bringing the children of Israel out of Egypt. You see Pharaoh thought he had authority. God said, "No, actually you don't." Pharaoh said, "I'm the most powerful in in this whole land." And the Lord says, "Actually you're not." And Moses went to Pharaoh and said, "Let my people go so that they may worship me," says the Lord. And Pharaoh says, I don't even know that God. I know a lot of gods. I don't know him. Now, do you know that Pharaoh also considered himself to be a son of God? God's regent, his ruler on this earth. He actually believed that he himself was God in the flesh. How many of you think he was right? Nobody. You see, he got that wrong. But he didn't know that. Until something happened. Listen to what God says, Exodus 6, one. The Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. Isn't that interesting? Pharaoh originally said they can't go. Eventually, he said, they got to go. Something changed. What changed his mind? The mighty hand of God. Did God ask for permission? No. Did he ask politely? No, he did. He did. He sent his representative, Moses, to ask politely. Right? The first time. Several times he said, let my people go so that they can worship me. But the Lord asked politely, and he sent someone who Pharaoh could recognize, even though it was hard, because Moses had been raised in the household of Pharaoh. But the Lord had plans of his own, even though Pharaoh thought he was the ruler and the sovereign over the Jewish people. At Passover, God showed his authority over Pharaoh, but he also showed his authority over the government of Egypt. He showed his authority over the whole social system of Egypt. Do you remember the Egyptian society and how it regarded shepherds? The Egyptians considered shepherds to be, how would I compare them? Worse than pig farmers to Jews, if if you know what I'm what I mean, a, a Jew might say, "Oh, a pig farmer is like really low." I'm not meaning to insult any pig farmers, just to make a comparison. The Egyptians considered sheep to be unclean, and those who took care of them to be unclean as well, and it was an offense to them to even sacrifice sheep to their gods. That was one of the rationales Moses gave, which was you've got to let us go because if we do what we're going to do, which is take blood of the lamb and offer it to our God, you'll, you won't like us and you won't want to see it. The social system, even of Egypt, was lower. Than God's authority. And do you know the economic system of Egypt was also lower than God's authority? The Egyptian economy depended on Jewish slavery. I hope you understand that. And God did not propose a change of laws in Egypt, He had a stronger plan than that. He basically said, you can't have my people. They're not yours. They're going to serve me, not you, Pharaoh. And they've been here long enough. So I'm taking them back, and I'm not paying a dime for them. It's interesting, when God decided to redeem Israel out of Egypt, he didn't pay full price to the Egyptians. In fact, do you remember what Moses told the children of Israel to do on their way out? Plunder, hell To go to their neighbors who were Egyptians and to ask for silver and gold and other stuff. Right? At a time when the Egyptians felt fairly vulnerable and they were willing to say yes. When the children of Israel finally left the land, Pharaoh changed his mind, as you know, tried to get a hold of them. That didn't work. But when you think about the temple, the tabernacle that was built with silver and gold from the offering, where did the children of Israel get it? From Egypt, right? And how did they get it? They asked for it. They didn't actually pay anything for that other than the slavery that they'd already submitted to. Number six. God used Passover to demonstrate his authority over the gods of Egypt. Not only was he the authority over the Egyptian pharaoh, society, government, and economy, but God wanted to show something that the gods of Egypt were nothing compared to him. Exodus 12, 12. On that same night, the Lord says, I will pass through Egypt I will strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The Lord wanted to take the children of Israel out with a message for Egypt, and that is you're serving false gods. And they seem to have power, but they don't have ultimate power. God was declaring, I have ultimate power, and I will reduce your false gods to nothing. These are important things for us to remember because we live in an age where we can be tempted to think the economies of the world or the social system or the governments of the world have greater power on this earth and that we will be victimized by them. And there are times when governments and economies are organized in such a way that they oppress people. And God has the ability to bring judgment on those and to redeem his people through that judgment, not just to destroy, but to set free. God who delivers also sets free. Now, number seven, God uses Passover to keep his authority and redemption in our minds. Now, touch your noggin if you have one. That's good. From God's perspective, the Passover is an historic act never to be forgotten. We are to recall it every year, family by family, parents to their children. And that is why we are told to have Seder at home. It's good for us as a congregation to have a Seder as a community. But it does not take the place of having Passover at home. We're to have Passover at home and to do certain things in order to demonstrate our own confidence in God's deliverance and to teach our children as well. Exodus 12:25 through 27. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, observe the ceremony, the Seder. And when your children ask you, what is this ceremony, what does this Seder mean to you? Then you tell them, it's the Passover sacrifice to the Lord, who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. In other words, this is a moment when we remember and we teach our children. Why are we doing this? Our kids are going to ask. And we need to have answers. As they get older, we turn the tables on them. And we ask the questions. That's what I did with with two of my grandchildren who were with us this week as we're celebrating our Seder, I said, why are we doing this? What does this mean? And I wanted to hear their answers. They did really well. I was glad for that. From God's perspective, Passover is a defining moment for the Jewish people. We remember our slavery. slavery, We remember our redemption. But you know what's so important is to remember that the exodus from Egypt was accomplished by God. This was not the result of good Jewish planning or organization or a strong Jewish military. How many soldiers did we have that day? Zero. The army was the army of the Lord. This helps us understand something. Redemption is something God does for us. What's our part? To trust him. And to obey him. His part is to redeem. That's good news. You don't have to redeem yourself. If you're in trouble. Don't worry. Our redeemer lives. And throughout. Throughout our lifetimes. We are supposed to be looking for God's hand. In the current events of our lives. You know what makes believers depressed. Is when they wonder where is God now. And Passover is a cure for depression like that. Because we remind ourselves, where was God? Where is God? The same God who delivered Egypt is going to deliver me. If you need a breakthrough, Passover is the time to, to lay hold of the Lord. Now let's connect the Passover at Egypt with the Passover of Yeshua. And ask this question, what's the heavenly perspective regarding Yeshua's death, burial, and resurrection during Passover? And I say heavenly perspective because Yeshua's death, burial, and resurrection touched heaven. So we have to ask, what was actually going on? And I don't think there's a better description and explanation of this than is found in Hebrews chapter 9. Do you know why this letter is traditionally called Hebrews? Because it was written to Jews, to Messianic Jews. The writer of Hebrews has unique insights, starting in chapter 9, verse 11. He's comparing and contrasting Yeshua as the perfect high priest, as the Passover lamb, and as the Kippur sacrifice. And he's comparing and contrasting that with all that happens at Passover and all that happens at Yom Kippur because they're connected to each other. Don't ever forget that. Passover and Yom Kippur are connected. When Messiah came as high priest, do you remember how to say high priest? (laughs) Kohen Hagadol. When Messiah came as high priest of the good things that are already here, He went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man made. That is to say, not a part of this earthly creation. Now, the writer of Hebrews is writing people who understand something about the tabernacle and the temple of Jerusalem. The tabernacle in the wilderness and the temple in Jerusalem. What was the pattern for that tabernacle? Who remembers? heaven. Moses was given a vision of heaven, and he saw something in heaven, and he made copies and replicas of some things he saw in heaven. So that's the background, and the writer of Hebrews expects that everyone reading his letter understood that. Now, if you didn't understand that Before this minute, it's really important that you understand this, or else you can't understand Hebrews. You'll miss it. When Messiah came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. In other words, the tabernacle of heaven. Verse 12. He did not enter using the sacrifices of blood and goats. But he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood. Say that with me. His own blood. Having obtained eternal and heavenly redemption. The blood of goats and bulls, the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are unclean, sanctify them so that outwardly they are clean. How much more then will the blood of Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, how much more will the blood of Messiah cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? Verse 15. For this reason, Messiah is the mediator of the new covenant, Habrita khadasha, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom. And when it says ransom, it means the purchase price for redemption, to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. And then it goes on, and it says that this sacrifice touched eternity, it touched heaven. And we have to ask ourselves, why did heaven need to be touched? And I want you just, because the time is limited, just to think about this. There was an ancient rebellion of angels. And there was an ancient rebellion of mankind that had actually had an impact on the heavenly temple and had left it in need of cleansing. And Yeshua came to perform the ultimate cleansing of that temple. It describes in verse 23. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with the sacrifices of bulls, goats, lambs. But the heavenly things themselves, say that with me, the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Verse 24, this really captures something. Messiah did not enter a man-made sanctuary There was only a replica of the true one. He entered heaven itself. Now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. 26. Then Messiah would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages, to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Messiah was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Who will receive that salvation? Those who are waiting for them. Waiting means expecting, looking for. For those who are waiting for him at Passover, remember this, the children of Israel waited for the Lord to come and rescue them. You and I, in these last days, wait for the Lord as well. We wait on him. Once for all, Yeshua made a sacrifice. And he did for the world, for mankind, what animal sacrifices could not fully accomplish. And he did it at just the right time. Tomorrow I'll have a chance to talk more about that because the time is limited now. But Yeshua, as Romans 5 verse 6 says, at just the right time, at just the right time, Messiah died for the ungodly. Now what was the right time? Passover. Passover at just the right time, at Passover. As an act of redemption, Yeshua died for the ungodly. And God demonstrates in this his own love. While we were still sinners, Messiah died for us. Messiah died for us. He died for us also right during the last generation that had the temple in Jerusalem. During the time of Yeshua, Judaism was becoming transformed. It was was changing. It was anticipating a day when the temple would no longer be the center. It didn't know why. There were different views. Uh, The the Pharisees, for instance, had a view that the home would be the center. The Essene Jews thought that the temple had become polluted and corrupted and that the priests were false. Servants of Rome and not servants of the God of Israel. The, the synagogue emerged as an alternative rather than the temple. The, the Jews in the diaspora were not temple-centered during that period. There were changes that were taking place in anticipation, but only Yeshua understood the temple was going to come to an end. And when he prophesied about it, it was, it was a little bit vague and mysterious, and it wasn't understandable but he was preparing to provide a sacrifice then that would last forever, that would touch heaven and touch earth. And he provided, if you will, the solution for a dilemma, what to do for a sacrifice for our sins. If the temple isn't standing, if that system has come to an end, what is the sacrifice for our sins? Now, thank you, Tom and D. Crow for giving me the forward because not only did it have an interesting article about Mormons and Passover, it has an article on the front page this week about an ultra-Orthodox rabbi who is gathering together, let's see if I can get the number right, 300 goats and sheep and 20 slaughterers in order to prepare sacrifices for when Messiah returns, the article is very interesting because it brings out a, what's considered a minority point of view in Judaism, and that is that a sacrifice is still needed. In fact, the Ethiopian Jews, do you know this? A Passover, while they were in Ethiopia, they sacrificed the lamb every year, each family did. And And when they wanted to come to Israel, do you know what they were told? No more lambs. No more sacrificing. You can't come if you do that. But within Judaism, there is still this dilemma that says we know we need redemption. And we know that redemption is only possible with the blood of a lamb. What will we do? And so I think this impulse is an interesting impulse, even though the solution is not a good one. What is the alternative to the blood of those lambs? The blood of the lamb. And that's why Yohanan said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Because he understood That Yeshua was Mashiach, and that he would do something that other lambs, if you will, could never do. And he would do it once for all. The redemption that God showed Egypt, the power that he showed to Egypt, he then repeated by raising Yeshua from the dead. And by proving that not only is he the God of the whole world, he's the God of life and death. And he has victory over life and death. I love the way that Isaiah summarizes, if you will, what Messiah will accomplish. He says this. Let me see if I can find the note here for you. Isaiah 25, verse 8. He says, he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears. He will remove forever all insult and mockery against his land and against his people. The Lord has spoken. You know what's so interesting about that statement? It's very clear that the Lord is not leaving the task to someone else. He will do it. Who will swallow up death forever? God. How? In Messiah. In what way? By raising Messiah from the dead and proving his victory over life and death. He came down from heaven as Yeshua, and that's how he shows to us that he has victory over physical death and over spiritual death too. It all happened at Passover for a reason that we would connect the redemptive and loving authority of God demonstrated at Passover with the redemption and the love of God demonstrated by the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Yeshua. And it would remind us to continually make connections and to say, you've got to take the blood of the Lamb yourself and apply it. There may be some in the room and some who are listening by podcast who have thought, you know, I grew up Jewish, and so I was taught that Yeshua wasn't the Messiah, but I think he is. And I would say to you, it's time to move another step. It's time to take the blood of the Lamb and to apply it. To move from knowing about something to take action Because of it. And you can do what the children of Israel did at Passover, which is to take that blood and put it as a sign to God. And you can say, I take the blood of Yeshua as my sacrifice. And I take Yeshua not only as my Messiah, but as my Redeemer and my Savior. And I know that God in Messiah redeems me. And I come out from that kingdom of darkness because of the blood of the Lamb. And I come out of that slavery that has held me in captivity because I have a Redeemer in Yeshua. And I pledge my conscience to Him, to follow Him to call him my Lord, my Savior, and my Redeemer, and to become his disciple. When you make that commitment, when you pray like that, when you act like that, you join in with the Ancient of Days and the victory and the celebration that he started at Passover and he continues to this very day. And you move yourself out of one kingdom because of Yeshua into another kingdom. Like Israel came out of Egypt, not by redeeming themselves, but by trusting the Redeemer, God himself. You move from one kingdom to another, from the kingdom of darkness and death, into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. It's a great day. If that happens to you, if you say, I'm going to follow Yeshua like that, it's important to tell someone. If you're here, come tell me. If you're listening by podcast, send me an email, rabbi david at bethisraelnow.com. And, and just tell me, share the good news with me. And we'll pray for you that God will establish you in all of his victory and all of his redemption. Lord, we thank you for Pesach, we thank you for Passover. We thank you for the blood of the Lamb. We thank you for Yeshua, who is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. We remember your victories in Egypt. We remember your victories in Jerusalem. We remember your victories today, here. We bless you in Yeshua's mighty name. Amen. 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 Let's stand and close with Aaron's blessing. The Lord bless you. The Lord protect you and keep watch over you. The Lord cause the light of his face to shine upon you. The Lord be gracious to you the Lord lift up his face to you and give you his shalom in the name of Yeshua, the Prince of Peace. Amen. Amen. Pesach Sameach Shabbat Shalom.